Welcome to the Dean's Table, a podcast featuring the scholarship, lives, and imaginations of social scientists at Columbia University in the city of New York. I'm your host, Frederick Harris, professor of political science and dean of social science. Today, we have with us Claudio Lemnitz, a historical anthropologist here at Columbia. Claudio is an expert on Mexican society and is the author of the fascinating cultural history, Death and the Idea of Mexico, among many other books. But Claudio's work also extends well beyond the walls of the university. He is a regular columnist for a Mexican newspaper, and Claudio has written not one but two plays that have been directed and staged by his brother in Mexico. Claudio, welcome to the Dean's Table. Thanks very much, Fred. I'm delighted to be here. I discovered that you were born in Chile, but grew up in Mexico, which means your family history has been shaped by migration. Can you share with us your family's history of movement across borders? I can, although it'd take a while. I'll, be very, I'll try to be as brief as possible. I mean, I come from, from exiles from Europe, Jewish hmm. family on my mother's side. Um, my grandparents emigrated to Lima. They met in Peru. And then they were kicked out of Peru because they were involved in leftist politics in that country in the 1920s. Emigrated around until they finally went to Chile, thanks to my parents' marriage. Mm-hmm. My father uh, emigrated to Chile from uh, from Belgium. They, they left Germany in 33, and then uh, they left Belgium to Chile in 38. So it's a story of exile on both sides connected to the war, the interwar period. Uh, and uh, and I was born in Chile. And then my dad was uh, was an academic. He was a scientist. He's in geophysics. Oh, and really? so uh, <laughs> we traveled around a bit because of him. And that's why we arrived to Mexico. He was hired by the National University there. How old were you when you arrived in Mexico City? I was 11. And I arrived in 68, June 68, which is what, oh. right when the student movement started <laughs> there. <laughs> so, since my father worked in the university, I do have you know memories. What are those memories, by the way? Well, um, I, I mean, I remember the dramatic things because uh, because I was too young to sort of know the real, understand the politics of it. But I do remember the army coming in, to, going into the National University, mm-hmm. and so at that point, my and we, you know, there were there were tanks and things like that in the university, um, but we weren't there for the. I mean, thankfully, for the 1968 uh, student massacre, which happened in October in part because my father's boss said, you know, it's better for you to clear out of the city. You don't have anything to do with this, and it's, not, it's getting ugly. Yeah. Well, this is a fascinating story. So so how did you come to study uh, Mexico from a disciplinary perspective of anthropology, right? Uh, given your interests, particularly your creative writing, your fiction writing, you could easily have gone into literature. Why anthropology? I, in part, I didn't occur to me that I could have gone into literature. I, I, I think I, I wasn't, I don't think, confident enough in that area. But in part, I was, I did have a real draw to history and to anthropology from high, my high school days. And uh, anthropology in Mexico, when I studied it, was a very prominent field. In part, you know, uh, the, there is the National Museum of Anthropology, this very rich archaeology. I studied in Mexico City, my undergraduate. 
So you were there, but where did you do your graduate work in anthropology? I came to the U.S. I got a fellowship to go to Stanford, mm -hmm. and I got my Ph.D. there. Mm -hmm. I was also a year in, in Paris at the, at the École des Études, and uh, it was in California, actually, that I started thinking about the possibility of not working in Mexico. I initially... Uh -oh. Um, at that time, it was before the internet and all that. It was very hard for to sustain academic research in the social sciences in Mexico if you weren't working in Mexico because they didn't really have the library resources or anything like that. Did you define yourself then as a historical anthropologist? Um, I began my 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 introduction to history did happen at Stanford because um, although I was in the anthropology department, mm -hmm. I, one of the members of my committee was um, a historian named Richard Morse, who was a very distinguished historian of Brazil. Mm -hmm. And Morse was interesting to me because he was uh, he was an American historian who worked in the intellectual history of Latin America. And he was a rare, rare figure because he took Latin American intellectual history seriously and not only as a problem to solve, which I think was very common among American scholars and <laughs> European scholars too, but especially right. seeing Latin America as a, as a problem to solve rather than as a place that you can learn from. And uh, Morse was of the latter kind. And he interested me a lot in Latin American intellectual history, more than I had been when I was in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And what is the tie to anthropology? And for our listeners, could you tell us what historical anthropology is? Some of us may be familiar with social anthropology, physical mm -hmm. anthropology, uh, historical mm -hmm. anthropology. Yeah. I mean, it's what's happened, I think, maybe since the 1970s, 80s, uh, is you started getting, on the one hand, a lot of historians getting influenced by anthropology. Just a figure like uh, Clifford Geertz for, was very uh, instrumental in this. And you had a number of, of historians um, who were inspired in the work of, of anthropologists and started doing a kind of history that was much more culturally inflected. Uh, but likewise, you started getting anthropologists who started uh, realizing that ethnographic method tended to be very presentist. Mm -hmm. And uh, even the anthropologists who worked on social processes, which is something that was really important, especially for those of us who were interested in politics, we tended to work with in rel relatively shallow uh, time frame. And often there was the conceit among anthropologists of a much older generation that the societies that anthropologists work with didn't necessarily have the uh, histories in the sense that you couldn't write them because there wasn't the documentary record, which was often actually false. Um, very often there was a documentary record. We just weren't very good at getting access to it. So historical anthropology is something that developed in that space. And it developed both on the side of historians who and who started working with anthropologists and on the side of anthropologists who started working with historians. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. So I want to shift gears a bit um, and, and talk about on the meaning of public engagement. So you are, you're a Mexican-American uh, who is politically engaged in the public life of Mexico. In the introduction to your book, Deep Mexico, Silent Mexico, you write the following. In my years in the United States, I have often thought of my experience in relationship to those of Mexican migrant workers, to their ties to home villages, and to the ways in which their lives are lived and justified in the United States. And you go on to say, quote, I do not mean to make too much of this comparison, 
as I am not especially interested in Mexican-American identity politics, nor do I seek a new group to represent now that I have, quote, abandoned, unquote, Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) And I find this passage uh, fascinating. Um, You've written about exile. Do you feel like you have abandoned Mexico or that your home country has abandoned you or neither of those? (laughs) Um, Right now, I don't feel that I've uh, left it behind as much as I did when I wrote those lines. Um, The truth is, I think that when you have migratory experiences, Mm -hmm. the the feelings that you can have both to the place that you've uh, left and to the place where you're living shift and change a, change a bit. And I think also um, that technology uh, has has also um, upended some of that. It's, it's much harder to actually get cut off from your hometown right. now than it was even 15 years ago. I see. Um, so I write for the paper in Mexico. I've written for the paper in Mexico mm-hmm. for the past maybe seven or eight years, weekly or every other week. Um, that means that my involvement is intense. And then here at Columbia, we have a Center for Mexican Studies where w- that receives people from Mexico regularly. So I don't feel as cut off as I had maybe earlier. That sense of being cut off, was it because it wasn't easy to communicate with those well, across the border? Um, I think that it, I was I was never really cut off, maybe, but I was... I was finding it a little difficult to translate between my experience in the academy and the university here hmm. and what was going on there. I um, see. There was a time when in Mexico, uh, and uh, this time when wasn't very long ago, it still is uh, an issue, that Mexico had a lot of, of difficulty really assimilating the life of people from Mexico in the U.S., mm-hmm. including people from, like me, who was, like I say in that those paragraphs, I'm not a campesino who came to the U.S. to find work. I was I was hired here from, by a university, um, mm-hmm. so I was, came in a very privileged position. But I think that Mexico, because of its long history with the U.S., mm-hmm. has tended to have, especially in the intelligentsia, kind of reactive connection to the U.S. And uh, that has diminished a lot in the last maybe 20 years or so because the integration of the two countries has accelerated. I mean, I was surprised when one day I realized that I had been here 10 years and I hadn't read a history book on the U.S. And Mm -hmm. I think that if I had moved to any other country but the U.S., Mm -hmm. I would have read a book about it before going. It's kind of interesting to see that there's a – ignorance is sometimes a cultivated thing. And I think that there's a lot of ignorance in that cultivated sense. Uh, There was a lot of ignorance uh, around the the U.S., and I do feel strongly that that's diminished. There's much more openness than there used to be. Right. So let's talk about your your work on Mexico, your scholarship Mm -hmm. on Mexico. Um, Tell us about the book, The Death and Idea of Mexico. What was that about? That's probably my my biggest book, I think. Um, It's a sweeping 500-year history of the management of death, representations of dying and death in Mexico. And it started because um, in the year that I, that I studied in Paris, I was in the seminar of Philippe Arias. And Philippe Arias was uh, a great historian who wrote, who published actually the year that I was there, 81. 
this major history of uh, death in the West. And uh, I, I, I thought, well, let's, I'll write a book that's about how it, how it is that the relationship to death becomes a national sign in Mexico, which it becomes in the 1920s. And I started working on that. Mm -hmm. My idea was to write a, sh a short book, and that rarely has happened to me. I tend to <laughs> go for these long-winded things. It's terrible. Uh, you're a historian. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Not to say history is long-winded, but you, you get my point. It's a great deal of detail. Right? Yeah, that's right. right. There is a kind of love of detail, which can be a bit daunting to readers sometimes. <laughs> I hope that the book is readable. Mm -hmm. So I ended up uh, writing a really major work that accounts for the management of death in Mexico since the Holocaust of the 16th century and shows how it is that death became dying, and not only death, but also, let's say, the sign of death, like, for example, the skeleton. Mm -hmm. um, right. That's not really death. It's, it's a sign of death. Um, how it is that that became so ubiquitous in Mexican popular culture? because it even became, in the, by the 20th century, becomes a sort of nationalist sign. And it's odd because um, most places, proximity to death, being close to death, is seen as a sign of savagery, right? Um, and when you look at uh, writers, let's say the British in India or, you know, colonial writers, they often complain about societies that they see as being savage or barbaric because they're too close to death. And here you have this national society, modernizing society in the 1920s, 30s, that embraces its proximity to death as a kind of national sign. And that was a little bit of a puzzle to me. Mm -hmm. Mexico as a country had a, is a strange country because... It was the most important, New Spain was the most important colony of Spain in the New World, uh, the largest, the most populated, the richest. And after Mexico is born as a republic, it has um, what one could see as a nation as a kind of near-death experience, which was first the war with the U.S. in 1846 to 48, right. and then the war, the French intervention of the 1860s. So you have a whole generation of people in Mexico, intellectuals, politicians, who aren't sure whether Mexico is going to survive as a country. And I think that that gives the connection of the nation to death a, a certain kind of uh, inflection that you don't find in most other countries. Um, I want to shift gears a bit to talk about how your scholarship is connected to your creative fictional work. Um, why have you chosen to take your scholarship to the theater? Well, uh, in part, I did it because I could, I have to say. <laughs> and the reason why I could is because uh, I have a brother in Mexico City who's a theater director. And um, the thing about doing theater I've learned is that you, one thing is to write it, but it's, it's, it's hard to actually get it staged. And mm -hmm. um, you have to be able to do that. And I would not have been able to do that on my own. I didn't have the resources, the, the connections. So, so tell us the, about your most recent play. What is it about? How you, did it come from your scholarship? It, it did come from my scholarship. It's called La Gran Familia, which means the, the, the great family or the big family. And it's based on a story that happened in 2014, four years ago. And I was interested in the family and the community around the problem of the drug war. I, I, I was feeling and I was writing a bit in the paper that... 
a lot of the discussion of the drug war focused on the crisis of the state, uh, but that there wasn't very much on the pressure that community and family were facing. And I was working on that when, in the summer of 2014, there was a a scandal broke out in the press around the federal police raiding uh, an orphanage known as La Gran Familia. And I went out like the day after. I did a couple of weeks of, of interviews and came back and thought, this is, you know, this is an incredible story because this, it was, this is an institution created by this woman who was about whom there, was all, there were all kinds of stories. She was like a legendary figure. Her name was Rosa Verduzco, and she was known as Mama Rosa. And this lady, she had begun adopting, like, street kids and orphans and then, you know, juvenile delinquents that were taken to her uh, since the 1960s. And she was 80 by the time they, they the police raided. And by that time, there were 600 uh, kids in this institution. Wow, 600. 600. And it was run like a family. She believed that they were all her kids, and she used to register them under her name. And it was a very, very odd kind of institution, which was sort of very much outside of what the what, what the government would have wanted. And it was a moment, I think, where there was a lot of tension for the Mexican state around control over the family, the future of children. There had just been President Obama about a month before had declared a crisis on the border of migrants, un, unaccompanied uh, minors migrating across the border. So the Mexican government was to some extent reacting to political pressure by staging what they, this, this operation, which was very much a media operation. It was a big, big newspaper scandal. So I saw it and then I thought, I, I, and I did write a piece of scholarship on the thing, but as I was doing it, I felt like the story was much bigger, it allowed for public discussion of the issue of the connection between family and state, of the question of the family in regions like Michoacán, which have been really torn by the drug war, and also that have, uh, Michoacán has like over 40% of its population lives in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and that the case was better in terms of public debate presented in the theater than, than as an academic paper. And that was the origin of the, the play. And it's a musical. It's a musical, yes. Zamora, Michoacán, 6 de enero de 1934. Aquí está la niña rosa, regalo del día de reyes, capullito de esperanza, floración del año nuevo. The thing about the reason why I thought of it as a musical is because some of the the development of the main character, this Rosa Verduzco, Mama Rosa, has a legendary side to it and also a very almost stereotypical side of a sort of almost like a virgin mother, you know, adopting kids and then but at the same time it explodes way beyond 
what it's supposed to. The paradigmatic social type is constantly kind of spinning out of control. And I thought that a musical would be good for that because the musical, on the one hand, the musical uh, lends itself to working on stereotype, like the little girl who wants to adopt a, a kid or the mother who's alone, who's adopted, who has a number of children. Who is, so there are a number of, let's say, social types that are in there mm-hmm. that lend themselves to Broadway-like treatment, and while at the same time it's political theater, and so there's constant tension between those, those songs and what's actually happening. So as you know, Claudio, as, as social scientists, um, we aim to pursue value-free and rigorous scholarship, mm-hmm. right? So with that in mind, uh, how do you see your work as a columnist and as a playwright? Do you see yourself as a public intellectual? Um, I guess so. Um, in Mexico, I, I am. Um, mm-hmm. Here, I'm not so much. I think I'm an academic here. But uh, I think that the thing is that, to my mind, scholarship scientific scholarship uh, is really a a tremendous value right now, of tremendous value. It's scarcer than we realize very often. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something truly and genuinely to be defended because it is, it has been under attack. And I don't mean only in the U.S. I think, uh, in fact, the U.S. has preserved spaces for this better than lots of places. And if you go to Latin America, the scholarship is, a social science scholarship is much more beleaguered than here um, in terms of budgets, in terms of the pressures that, that uh, faculty are facing or students. So I think that the value of scholarship is precious, but exactly because it is precious, it's important for it to have some porousness with other genres that are not as value-free. You can't write a column without taking a position. It's very hard. And that doesn't mean that you can't use scholarship. Uh, you do, I do use scholarship routinely when I'm writing for the paper, and I routinely write for the paper and have for years. But I use scholarship, but at the same time, I do create, let's say, an identifiable voice and point of view, and that's why people read my column, those, those who do. So in that sense, I think that it's a little bit more partisan than the scholarship, but hopefully the, the presence of the scholarship makes a difference. But I have to say that I think that although social scientists tend sometimes to sort of envy the public intellectual kind of role, uh, the more enviable role to me is the scholarship one. So... In your scholarship, I noticed that family has been at the center of your your research. In the production of your plays, you work in collaboration with your brother. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Highly (laughs) conflicted. (laughs) Well, I was going to get to that. (laughs) How has it been working with him? (laughs) As as we're pretty clear. No, it's been wonderful. In in part, these two plays have been my only experience, real experience, with deep collaboration. I tend to work alone in my scholarship. And with the theater, it's a completely cooperative genre because it's not only the writing, but the the play. The, it involves actors. It involves producers of different kinds. And so it's a big collaboration. And that, for me, has been 
a tremendous learning experience and very exciting. And then the work specifically with my brother, which has been with the writing, has been good because, as you mentioned, I'm his older brother, so I tend to want to boss him around. But <laughs> he is a theater director, and there's uh-huh. nothing bossier than a theater director. Oh. Like, like, you can't believe it. It's like really? being the captain of a ship. I mean, <laughs> they're constantly in charge of everything. Mm-hmm. So, Could you do that? What he's doing? No, no, I could, I could not. I, I definitely could not. I don't have the attention to detail, or maybe I, I don't know whether I could. But if I could, I would take a lot of learning. So there were, there was, let's say, a, a conflict in two principles of authority: huh. the older brother versus the theater director. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it ended up being productive, and we were able to write these plays. Right. So for those social scientists interested in the creative arts. Um, What can you tell them about the challenges they face? What does it take to make this type of creative work? Well, it does take a lot of time. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that because there's significant effort, it's a kind of decision that one should make judiciously. I can't say I did that the first time. Uh, The first play I did, I had never written something like that. I didn't know what it involved, and it was just sort of an experiment. But the second time, I was already more cognizant of this fact. That uh, that it is um, it is a, a commitment in terms of time, and one shouldn't do it thinking that you're going to be able to do everything else. There there are some costs. That's the first thing, and the second is um, I think that people who are trained in the U.S. in American colleges have advantage an advantage that I don't didn't have, and I think it's an advantage that they can use. And what's that? And that's that they have a liberal arts education which I, I don't have. Like, I, I'm constantly in awe of, let's say, our, of our undergrads here at Columbia. You know, they, you know, you mentioned John Locke, and they know who you're talking about, and it's quite fabulous. Or, and they may be chemistry students, and they know what you're talking about. Whereas in Latin America, and I think in Europe too, the training is more specialized from early on. So there was a lot uh, about the arts that I think a lot of American college students are more familiar with, and they can take advantage of that. And I thought I had to learn a number of things that I think a lot of our college students do know and that I didn't. Yeah. Okay, so Claudio, you have to really give up the secret sauce. So I'm, I'm gonna, <laughs> So what advice can you give me? So I have some ideas here. So how should I go about turning those journal articles and the, those university press books into plays and musicals? <laughs> so right now I'm thinking of writing a play called The Dean and I, uh, a take on Not Quite the King and I. <laughs> and I'm thinking big, you know, music by Andrew Lord Webber, or The Cat's Fame. <laughs> but seriously, I, I think... Do a good job, <laughs> but seriously, I, it seems like it takes a special type of skill to turn academic research into playwriting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I, I've not reflected yet very much. I do want to reflect more, but here's a let me give it a shot. First, and I know it's stupid, but for me, it was still a surprise, stupid or not. The first is that the playwriting—it's all action. There is no description. So whereas. If you're writing ethnography, you're writing history, you're constantly describing and you're constantly contextualizing. Here, it's a much more bare-bones thing. And action includes words, of course, but, but it's all action. And it's very rigorous around sequence. So you have to think a little bit about what the central conflict is. And you have to think a little bit also about 
some of the key moments or, or images that you're that you're going for because there can't be anything in it that doesn't have to be there, if you know what I mean. Exactly because of the rigor of time inside the play. In some ways, it's more like music than, mm -hmm. than like uh, social science writing in the sense that it really, everything is along, goes along, let's say, the syntagmatic chain, the, the, the chain of sequential chain. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is I found it, and I don't know whether this is true of the theater, just true of my very limited experience in it, which is that it's more philosophical than history is, by which I mean that you have to polarize in actual characters and situations what you think is going on. Whereas in history, you're constantly contextualizing. It's always like you're going for the gray zone, always. And here, you're constantly polarizing you what you want. If it's the Dean and I, then, and those are two sides of your own personality that right. you're that you're going for, then you have to actually pull them further apart than they probably are, in fact, mm -hmm. in order for each of those to have a voice, a clear voice. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you were writing about that conflict as a historian, you, you might say, well, you know, but yes, but I have these, I pulled in these two different directions. Mm -hmm. However, uh, yesterday, I wasn't, <laughs> you know, and that, that, that you would leave out of the play. <laughs> right, right. So I can't end our conversation without hearing from you your thoughts on Mexico-U.S. relations. As someone who straddles both worlds, how do you feel about the prominence of Mexico in the news today on such issues as immigration, family separation at the border, the capture of the, of the uh, drug kingpin El Chapo, mm -hmm. uh, the caravan of immigrants coming from Central America to Mexico who are trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm -hmm. Why do you think Mexico is so ever-present in our politics? Yeah, I mean, it's it's gotten very, very present. And uh, I think that right now American politics is very conflict-oriented. There's, there's a lot of political capital that can be gained from conflict and from polarization, as a lot of people have said that. I think it's true. And what that means, I think, is that Mexico is useful because it's a cheap conflict. Let's say it's a, it, having a conflict with China is much more expensive, or having a conflict with Europe is more expensive. Having a conflict with Mexico, it's expensive, more than sometimes people realize, but seems like it's easily available. So um, there is a longer-term issue to do with migration from from Central America, no no doubt. But I believe that there is political timing that is, uh, you know, there's a midterm election and, uh, you know, these all of a sudden there's a, there's a crisis around a caravan. I don't mean to say that the midterm election created the caravan. I, not at all. That's not the case. But I do think that how shrill or how uh, invisible the problem of migration becomes is to some extent cyclical and has to do often with electoral politics. And that's a shame because there is a structural problem there, a, a real human issue that needs to be addressed beyond any sort of short-term reaction. And to my mind, the politics around the wall are problematic for a number of reasons, but one of them is that a wall is, it's, it's huge pork barrel uh, politics. 
And the problem with pork barrel politics is not just clientelism, but it's also what you're investing in. And here you're investing in something that really is useless. It's a wall. It doesn't do anything. It's not a train. It's not a road. It's not the internet. It's not anything that is productive. And at the same time, it's hugely expensive. And uh, some of that money could be better spent, perhaps, I, I would hope, you know, in a politics of responsibility, because mm, the U.S. is co co-responsible, I don't think it is responsible, but it is co-responsible of what has happened in Central America. It has been involved in Central America. It has, it has participated in that. And I think that there is some shared, some shared responsibility. The wall doesn't exactly send a message of shared responsibility. What you're saying is, we don't want these people here, even though we're part of the reason why they're moving. And the U.S. is part of the reason why the people are moving, because of the wars in Central America in the 70s and 80s that the U.S. were involved in and because of the drug trade and because of the deportation. That's of, not part of the conversation. It's, it's interesting. In, in mainstream news, it's, it's not enough I think of that history. Is exactly. Being, I think that, <laughs> right. that's an, that is an example of how scholarship could permeate more public discussion because the wall does cost a lot of money. Detention centers do cost a lot of money. All of this is investment and it's unproductive investment, and it could be more socially responsible and show a sense of co-involvement, co-participation. I mean, if you look at Mexican migration in, the, in this country, I mean, it's been so important for so much activity in the U.S., from farms to care of the elders, uh, elderly or care, child care, to you know, kitchens, restaurants, uh, factories, etc. The the work of Mexicans in the United States has been huge. Now, Mexico has borne a lot of the cost of the reproduction of that labor force. That it seems to me that this whole image of the wall keeping out, keeping out, constantly denies the fact that these economies, especially Mexico, much more than Central America, Mexico, and the U.S are more deeply interconnected economically. In The Economist, a few years back, like about three years ago, wrote an article about this where they said Mexico and the U.S. economies are more deeply interconnected than any two countries in the European Union. Hmm. Now, that means is they're more interconnected than, let's say, Belgium and France or, yeah. you know, that's huge. It is. Yeah, yeah. So... I just want to ask you this question as well. Given that, um, what are your hopes for the future of U.S.-Mexico relations? Um, I think that there is, let's say, some hard wiring by now of like economic, social, cultural connection. Um, even when I, I mentioned, you know, the beginning of our conversation, how when I came here 30 years ago, I hadn't read a book about the U.S. I right. I think that that has really changed. I can see it in Mexican newspapers. Mexican newspapers, the coverage of U.S. news was shamefully bad. I mean, you think it's bad here. It was at least as bad there. And that has really changed. I think that U.S. coverage of Mexico has you know, gotten much better, much more serious. Uh, the, the U.S. has information on Mexico and there are social ties. Americans, how many Americans haven't been to Mexico in one way or another? And then there, there's 
the Americanization of Mexican things, which is also huge in Mexico. Figures like Frida Kahlo, Frida Kahlo the painter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, she, everybody knows who she is. And part of that has to do with the appreciation of Mexican culture in the U.S. or, you know, guacamole here, which is, you, I mean, avocado now in the U.S. has become ubiquitous. Yeah. You can't, you know. Or tacos. Taco, or you know, all burrito. this stuff. <laughs> right. And, and, and you have now, uh, you know, you also have significant players, let's say, in Hollywood who are Mexican film directors and mm-hmm. academics, people like me. I don't mean to say that I'm significant, but I'm oh, here. Yeah, yes. You know, I'm yes. here. And there are a number of people who are here. And. So I think that there is, let's say, a hardwired relationship that is much stronger than the political will of the, let's say, the the, the politics is sometimes playing with some, let's say, it has some leeway for heightening certain kinds of conflicts or ignoring other things. But at the same time, the leeway is not as large as people think. So, for instance, uh, Donald Trump kept on sort of grandstanding about against NAFTA. But when push came to shove, what he wanted was uh, kind of NAFTA by another name. I mean, why? Because it was too expensive to get rid of it. Right, right. So for my very last question, (laughs) um, will we be seeing your play in New York? sometime soon, um, at the very least on this side of Broadway, um, perhaps on campus? I would love that. I would love that. I'm working a bit now to make some clips and some of the music and translate a little bit of it so that I can show it around a bit here at Columbia and in the hope that that people might be interested. Um, But it would be awesome. I I hope that I can do it here because I'd be also very interested to see if it travels well or doesn't and people get it or doesn't, how universal is this? Or is it very local? I think there could be. I think there could be. You know, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Right. 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 Well, this is very exciting. And and so I want to thank you so much for coming through. Uh, It's been a joy to talk with you and I'll, I'll see you on campus. Thanks, Fred. Thank you very much for having me here. The Dean's Table is produced by Destry Maria Sibley, with production assistance from Jack Riley. Our technical engineers are A.J. Mangone and Ariana Sullivan. Our lead researcher is Calla Dieterville. Our logo is by Jessica Lillian. Our music is by Imperial. I'm Dean Harris.